The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, which is Taylor Hard Money Advisors, Inc., is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. We have a first-time trial offer to uh, each of you. Uh, those of you who have not tried any of these newsletters, you're welcome to, uh, to try it uh, once. You can go to my website at miningstocks.com uh, to learn more about that or to sign up for uh, our subscriptions or call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Our show is growing in popularity and is now the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. That is true only because you are listening to this show. Well, today is quite a day in the market. We're seeing the equity market, the Dow down 146 points. Gold is up $14.20. The big news today, Goldman Sachs hearings on, uh, on the Hill in Washington, and the Greek bonds have been downgraded to junk status. So there certainly are some things uh, going on in the markets that are very, very interesting and, and perhaps troubling. Um, but in any event, again, thanks to each of you for listening. I just wanted to get that in because today does seem to be a pretty important day in the market. We want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. 
For the first hour of the show, they are Barkerville Gold, American Bonanza, Merix Gold, Inc., Palangio Exploration, Tara Minerals, PMI Resources, and Crocodile Gold. This week we have a jam-packed show for you. It's a bit different in that we will be focusing on oil and energy, whereas most of the time our focus is more on the precious metals. We have two special guests this week on the topic of oil and energy. First, we have world-renowned peak oil advocate Matt Simmons, the author of the best-selling book, Twilight in the Desert. And after Mr. Simmons comes on, Paul Michael Wiebe. He's the author of a book titled The Rise of the New Oil Order. He will be joining us for a somewhat different view of the markets than the peak oil theories espoused by, uh, by Matt Simmons. So Paul will talk about how new breakthroughs in technology, at least in part, have offset some of the concerns of the peak oil advocates. Because we are focusing on energy this week, toward the end of the second hour of this week's show, I will be talking to Charles Desjardins. He's the CEO of Kentucky of a Kentucky coal company, a company that's on Jay's watch list called North American Gem. And also in just a few minutes, I'll be talking with Amir Adnani. He is the president of Uranium Energy, and that's a new evolving uranium producer in the United States that's expected to double U.S. uranium production over the next few years. But before we get to Amir, we have Malcolm Stevens. He's the president of Sphere Resources here with us. Sphere Resources is a company on Jay's watch list. Uh, as such, we had Malcolm on with us just last week, and uh, he's back today because he has some important, some, I think what is probably some very important news that he wants to pass along to you. For those of you who may not listen to our show last week, Sphere Resources is an early-stage gold exploration company with some claims in the prolific gold-producing area of Red Lake, the Red Lake District in Ontario, where Gold Corp got their start. But in all fairness, we do have to we do have to underscore the the fact that Sphere is a very a, a very highly speculative gold exploration story at this time. Sphere trades on the pink sheets under the symbol SPHUF, and in Canada. It trades under the symbol SPH.H. It was trading at about three and a half cents earlier today when I checked. Well, welcome, Malcolm. Thank you, Jay. Yes, we we are uh, definitely in the gold business and uh, looking forward to kicking off uh, our exploration, in fact, in May um, in Red Lake uh, with Ian McCavity's group uh, leading the charge there, um, uh, Duncan Park. And uh, we start our IP and, uh, and uh, overall ground assessment and getting some early drilling, hopefully in July. So, uh, yeah, the next quarter is a very exciting quarter on the gold sec- sector for us. Okay, well, we'll be, we'll be watching for that, Malcolm, for sure. We'll be keeping our eyes on your press releases. But you had a very important press release you came out with today. I know last week when I talked to you, I expressed the concern of dilution of shareholders' interest. And that's some, uh, a concern you shared you said, and that you had your eyes on some possible business acquisitions that could bring in some early cash flows into Sphere that would reduce the need to continually go back to the market to, re- to raise capital that, that, by the issuance right, of new Jay. shares. Now, that's I understand right, today you did put out a press yeah. release. Could you very briefly, in just a couple of minutes, tell our listeners what that's about and what you're planning to do, and if you give us some idea about you know, how much cash flow you might be able to create, that would be helpful, too. Excellent. Yeah, the um, uh, the Puna in uh, Argentina is going to become a prolific uh, industrial minerals complex, if you like. Um, the main areas are going to be around uh, the gas pipelines at Pasitos, etc., where we are located, and uh, further away at the Salaria Grande, where we can produce sodium sulfate to make sodium carbonate for the uh, lithium carbonate industry. That is a, probably a medium-term uh, perspective in, in two years out. The shorter term is uh, producing uh, sodium sulfate for the, uh, 
for the detergent industry, uh, soaps and powders, uh, the Unilever, uh, etc. And we we have access to a, a pre-feasibility study and costs have been updated over the next few months and that can be ready for production within 12 months. So it's not far away. All right. How are you doing for cash right now, Malcolm? Do you need to raise some money or you have some private sources? Uh, Shareholders need to be worried because when you're selling at three and a half cents, it's a little difficult to raise capital. Do you have some financing capabilities in place now? Yes, we we are using our own financial resources um, at the shareholder level. Some uh, senior shareholders have been putting in money. Mm-hmm. But uh, we require very little on the expiration front because, uh, as we discussed last week, it's a back-in arrangement on the Red Lake property. And uh, uh, Duncan Park is spending the money to find it, and uh, we have a right to back in if they do find it, Jay. So okay. there's minimal outlay there. And uh, in, the, in the case of the Argentinian play, the first cash flow source uh, will be joint ventured out to Argentinian industrialists who will put up the money to earn an, in, earn an interest. And uh, that is being worked on at the present. Oh, very good. Well, I'm afraid that's uh, basically all the time we have right now, Malcolm, unless there's one, one other quick word you'd like to put in. We do have to run on to our next guest. But anything else you'd like to add real quickly? No, I've covered the points uh, I wanted to cover today, Jay, and thank you for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Malcolm. Okay, folks, we have to go to a commercial break now, but I'll be right back with Amir Adnani. He's the president of Uranium Energy Corporation. That's a company that looks to be on the verge of doubling the U.S. uh, uranium production in the next several years. I think it's a very, very interesting company. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be right back with Amir. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 
PMI Gold has just raised $7.5 million to expand drilling at four former gold mines we own in Ghana. Ghana is Africa's second largest gold producer, and with neighbors like Newmont, Anglo Gold, and Gold Fields, and a land position equal to the entire length of the Carlin Gold Belt, we're going for the gold. PMI Gold is listed in Canada and Frankfurt, and plans to list on the Australian Stock Exchange to finance development of our first mine at our Kubi Gold Project. Our plans are big and growing. Come grow with us. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. As noted uh, in our prior segment this week, our focus is on energy. In just a few minutes, we will be talking with Matt Simmons. He's the author of Twilight in the Desert. Uh, and then later, we're going to be talking to Paul Wiebe, another energy expert and consultant to the industry. Because the main topic this week is energy, I thought it appropriate to interview a couple of energy companies uh, on this show, companies that, in fact, are recommendations in my newsletter. I'm talking, uh, so with me now I have Amir Adnami. He's the president of Uranium Energy Corporation. 
Uranium Energy Corporation is traded on the American exchange under the symbol UEC. It has 60 million shares outstanding at this point in time. The stock has recently sold in the 310 to 315 range, and that's important because it means that if uh, many, if not most, of the company's warrants and options are exercised, the company would bring in an additional $25 million into its coffers. I should also mention that the company is well-financed at the moment. It has over $26 million <clears throat> on its balance sheet, so it is well-financed to become one of, the, one of a handful of uranium producers in the United States, and very possibly, from what I understand, uh, uranium energy could actually double or close to double the existing production in the United States, so that is uranium production. So welcome, Amir, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. It's great to be here. Well, good to have you here. Uh, you're focused primarily in Texas. Why Texas? Two reasons, Jay. If you're looking for uranium, you want to go where there's a history of uranium, there's documented and sort of rich uh, uh, areas that you can develop. And South Texas has um, one of the top uranium belts in this country. It was developed about 35, 30 years ago, uh, and every single major oil and gas company that used to be in the uranium business in the 60s and 70s and 80s used to be active in South Texas. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, uh, you need to have favorable policies and favorable permitting regimes to be able to get uranium projects licensed for production. And Texas truly is the energy capital of the U.S. and as such really has developed favorable policies that allow industry development in Texas where for example, in Texas today, for uranium mining, all the permits required to start production are issued at the state level only. If you're in any other state, you have to permit with both state regulators and the federal authorities, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In Texas, the federal authorities have basically delegated the task of oversight of the industry to the state, and so you have fast-track permitting, which is a significant advantage in the uranium business because the uranium business is uh, heavily regulated, and uh, there's a lot of permitting requirements to, uh, to complete. So you have sort of the perfect uh, one-two punch, or you can say the sweet spot in Texas, where the permitting regime is the most favorable in the country. And uh, second, there's a real long and rich history of uranium mining um, conducted by the majors. In the last uranium cycle, those majors all got out of the business, and today you've got this very active uh, uranium belt and a uh, situation that our company has tried to capitalize on and consolidate so that we can be uh, the dominant uh, Texas uranium company. All right. Well, uh, Amir, I want to get to uh, what are the economic prospects, the prospects of earning earning money, and what that might mean for your share price moving forward. But before we get to that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the supply and demand for uranium. If you could talk just a little bit about U.S. supply of uranium and how much do we consume, and then perhaps give a bigger picture, global uh, picture of of the supply and demand for uranium and what that might mean for uranium prices and, and ultimately what it might mean for uh, the prospects of Uranium Energy Corporation. Sure. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that I think you have to look at the nuclear industry from two perspectives. You have to look at where the growth is going to come from in terms of the expansion of the world's uh, nuclear capacity. And the expansion is definitely going to come primarily from the emerging economies, the powerhouses of China and India and Brazil. That's, those are the areas where you're going to see uh, the next sort of phase of nuclear build-out over the next 20 years. And that, that's the 
that's the factor that's going to basically double demand for uranium over the next 20 years. But you also have to look at the U.S. The U.S. today is the largest consumer of uranium in the world, by far, because there are currently 104 nuclear reactors operating in the U.S. You see, China wants to build 100 reactors over the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. currently has a fleet of 104 nuclear reactors that are currently operating and are currently generating 20% of U.S electricity, domestic electricity generation, 20%. Okay, so to, in order to be able to generate that 20% of electricity, these 104 nuclear reactors must consume on an annual basis roughly 55 million pounds of uranium, 55 million pounds. Yet domestic production of uranium is a tiny little three and a half or maybe four. Just call it four. I mean, it, it's, you get the point, four million pounds of domestic production versus 55 million pounds of annual consumption. And this isn't what we're going to build over the next 20 years. This is current requirements. So the U.S. is building less than 10%, is producing less than 10% of our uranium production every year. Exactly. And we're... Uh, we uranium say production. That, well, exactly. So you can say that for this very strategic metal that is very much important to at least the fifth of our current electricity grid, we're more dependent on foreign sources of, of the fuel needed for this than we are on oil. I mean, we have a 65% dependency on foreign oil. We have a 90 to 95% dependency on foreign uranium, uranium that's coming from these dismantled Russian uh, nuclear warheads or from uranium mined in Kazakhstan. And we're producing 20% of our electricity from uranium, from nuclear power. Exactly. Uh-huh. Well, Amir, I want to ask you, uh, I, again, there's one more question that, that comes to mind with respect to uh, the, immediate, uh, the immediate prospects for uranium. We see that uh, President Obama is, is meeting with Russia, and apparently they're hammering out some sort of an agreement to reduce the nuclear warheads. Is there a threat of having a large supply of uranium come onto the markets, suppress the price of uranium, and, there, and thereby make your business less profitable? Absolutely not. The, the number of nuclear warheads and the quantity of uranium available that are, let's say, military inventories of uranium, Jay, were always a finite quantity. And they're a source of supply that's getting smaller every year because we're not replenishing it. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, when the Cold War ended, and then subsequently in 1994, the U.S. signed the HEU agreement with Russia, which was to dismantle Russian nuclear warheads. Since that time to now, roughly 20,000 missiles or warheads have been dismantled. The latest announcements are calling for the dismantling of roughly maybe another 700 missiles. Okay, so it's roughly 3% or 4% of what has been dismantled since 1994. It's peanuts. It's a very small number. What it is, though, is that it's a political gesture. The, the power, you know, the U.S. and Russia must send a signal today to countries like Iran and North Korea, that's a signal about non-proliferation. It's a signal, it's a political gesture and sign of how even the superpowers are reducing the number of warheads that they have for military purposes and that it's unacceptable for any other country pursuing nuclear uh, to be pursuing it for uh, weapons or military activities and that it should only be a source of electricity generation. 
So when you, when you look at the, the military inventories of uranium, you must remember that this was basically like a large mine. And just like any mine, once you consume from that mine for a very long period of time, eventually you hit a decline curve, and eventually your resources and reserves get smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happening and is ha- has happened and will happen to the military inventories of uranium. They'll be there. They'll be dismantled Russian and American warhead. But they're not going to be an answer to a growing demand for uranium. And the only way to meet this imbalance is to mine more uranium. We can't just keep relying on dismantling more warheads. Okay, so that's what you're planning to do. You're moving forward. And how soon do you expect to be in production in Texas, and how much will you produce, Amir? Yeah, what makes Uranium Energy Corp. extremely unique today, I mean, there's really no other company like us out there today, is that we're the only development stage uranium company in the U.S. or in the world that is fully permitted for production. So that's the key thing. The second key thing is that in order to be able to actually mine uranium, you must control a very critical element of the production, which is the processing plant. The, the, the function of the whole mining process that allows you to recover the final product, uranium oxide. We control and own a fully licensed and constructed processing plant in Texas. This is the Hobson plant. Mm-hmm. And the Hobson plant has an installed processing capacity of 2.5 million pounds of uranium a year. We're not going to run up to that full capacity immediately, but you can see that it's very exciting to be in the position where, that we are right now where the installed capacity of our processing plant can uh, easily more than double the existing production in the U.S. once we get to that full installed processing capacity. Uh, but our immediate game plan and, and goal, and, and, and just to refresh uh, or to point out to your listeners that we are focused on a method of mining uranium referred to as in-situ recovery or ISR which is a very low-cost and environmentally friendly way of mining uranium. It's an alternative to open pit or conventional mining. It's basically solution mining. We're utilizing a charged oxidized solution. We dissolve uranium in ground, recover it in solution, and, um, and that's how we separate uranium uh, from solution, which is what our processing plant does. Again, because this method is extremely low-cost and, and cost-competitive, uh, we're able to, um, uh, that coupled with the fact that we have our permits, we're looking to move towards initial production um, sometime in late 2010. We're currently uh, have these developments underway, uh, and we project that um, over the next uh, 12 to 18 months, we can achieve an initial uh, production rate of 1 million pounds per year, uh, which, again, is, is only you know, 50% or less than 50% of our installed processing capacity so you can see that even at the initial rate, we would be able to bring a very meaningful amount of new production online. With ISR mining, we're looking at uh, production costs in, in the range of $15 per pound. And um, again, this is a very important benefit because most conventional projects um, are going to be, this is on average, new conventional projects are going to be uh, requiring costs or having costs of 30 to $40 per pound. Mm-hmm. So you can see ISR mining is very much on the low end of the cost curve. Mm-hmm. And um, we're in a position today where we have the plant, we have the permits, we have the resource, we have the favorable regime in terms of this, the, the state policy of Texas. And I think we very well will be the next new uranium producer in America, if not in the world. Okay. Uh, Amir, I understand that you've got sort of satellite deposits then that will feed your milling 
capacity. Is that right? And Correct. Milling capacity, exactly. Two, two million pounds or so a year. As we ramp up and we develop additional satellite deposits, that's how the growth comes, and that's mm-hmm. why we have this regional operating strategy, Jay, where you've got a central processing plant at Hobson, which is permitted, built, ready to go. And then what we utilize is we utilize this very long South Texas uranium belt. It's 400 miles long, Jay. And you can develop uranium deposits throughout this belt, develop them into um, a, a facility where you're recovering uranium in solution, and then you simply truck it up to your central processing plant. This is how uranium mining with ISR technology is currently being done in Wyoming by Cameco. It's how it's been done for decades in the U.S. and abroad. So it's a very proven method what we're doing. It's not some type of you know, science project invented yesterday. It's got a 25 to 30 year track record. But the biggest thing is economy of scale, where you've got basically these, the, a central hub and then various deposits throughout this very long and, and prolific uranium belt that you can develop and feed into the central uh, plant. So initially we'll have the first satellite deposit up and running. The goal is next year to have our second satellite uh, project up and running and uh, that's how the incremental growth in the production profile is going to come is from the ongoing development of various satellite deposits throughout the South Texas uranium belt feeding into our currently permitted and built processing plants. Okay Amir you mentioned that your cost you expect to be around $15 a pound could you give our listeners some sort of sense of what is the uranium price today what do you expect it to be what do you think you're going to get for the sale of your uh, your U308 product? Uranium prices are basically published or quoted in two different uh, uh, so-called markets, you can say. One is the spot market, which is currently at $41 per pound, and the other one is the term market, which is currently in the $58 to $60 per pound. So I think if you take an average of the two, you, you can say that a $50 sell price would be uh, sort of your reasonable in middle-of-the-ground price point for based on today's spot and term prices. So at $50 per pound, I mean, you know, you can do the math quickly. Is You know, with a million-pound produce, you're looking at potentially $50 million in revenue, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and, and, and that's what the, the financial picture would look like. Now, again, you have to keep in mind, Jay, that uranium prices have been very stubborn over the last year. Uranium prices year over year have not uh, budged at all. Mm-hmm. And so even though every other commodity since March of 2009, which you can say that from March 2009 onwards, we've had a global recovery in equities and in all, basically all commodities, uranium has not participated in the global recovery of prices in commodities and the related equities. Uranium has basically been flat since we've seen the rebound uh, in the markets from the, you know, the trough and from the lows that were brought upon by the financial crisis. So this is a very important element of this whole uh, picture to take note of. Is that Amir, could you, uh, we're just running out of time here. Could you give me some sense of how, what sort of multiple do uh, producing uranium mining companies trade at? So, so the listeners can do the math and figure out what kind of cash flow per share you might be looking at. How, what sort of multiples are major uranium producers uh, produce uh, selling at what sort of multiples to well, catch? in terms of I mean in terms of uh, in terms of earning multiples on average the producers are trading right now at around 20 times earnings in terms of uh, price to net asset value on average the producers are trading at a premium to net asset value 1.3 to 1.4 times uh, uh, price to uh, net asset value we're trading 
today at a 30% discount mm-hmm. to uh, our average net asset value. We're covered by six analysts, so this, these, these are all numbers that mm-hmm. uh, the street has on us, not numbers that I'm uh, okay. uh, providing. In the Very good. So, uh, Amir, I have to ask you uh, one last thing, which I always like to ask the people that come on this show, the, the CEOs of companies. What do you think could go wrong with your plans? You, you've given us a, a real positive outlook here, but is there anything that you can see that could, could uh, derail your, your optimism? Well, Jay, from this point on, we're an execution story. We're, we're in control of our own destiny because we have the permits, we have the cash, we have the plan. So it's an execution story. And it's about the operating people that are uh, out there executing our story and our business plan. And the entire technical team of our company was responsible for having permitted, designed, and built the last ISR uranium mine that started production in the U.S., which happened to be in South Texas, and we started, started production in late 2005. And um, that project is uh, successfully mining a million pounds of uranium per year right now. We're implementing the exact same type of operation with what we're doing uh, in Texas. And so it, the, the depth of our technical team not only has decades and combined hundreds of years of uranium experience, but it's very relevant experience. We have mm-hmm. people that build the last uranium mine that's successfully mining uranium in the U.S. for the last five years and they're now driving the execution strategy of UEC. And so I think you can say that this is as de-risked as uh, a company can get. It is execution for us from this point on, and I think we have the best team uh, out there that understands ISR, we're Corpus Christi-based, and so the team has lived and worked down there, each person for 25 to 35 years each, Um, and I think it's going to work out well. Well, I think that's that's very good, Amir. You, you've answered another question I didn't have time to get to, essentially, and that was your management team. You obviously have a very experienced management team in this industry, and that, folks, is always the most important thing. Amir, I want to thank you for your uh, for sharing your information on Uranium Energy. It is a very exciting story. It is a company that I recommend in my newsletter. I look forward to, to following your progress in the future. We'll probably certainly want to have you on again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now. Uh, Don't go away because we're going to have one of the best-known names in the energy industry, namely Matt Simmons, uh, coming on to talk to us about peak oil. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Matt Simmons. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. 
He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I believe Columbus Silver Corp traded Toronto symbol CSC and in the United States symbol CSLVF offers a potential gain of several fold over its March 31st price of 18 cents. I say that because of its low market cap, its Mojion gold and silver property hosting a partly delineated deposit containing 18 million ounces of silver and 300,000 ounces of gold equivalent. I say that also because of a strong management team. The stock is, of course, not without risk, but in my view, the risk reward ratio is presently very favorable. Go to ColumbusSilver.com to learn more. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits, Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. Merex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. For more information about Merex Gold, visit us on the web at www.merexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me Matthew Simmons. He's the chairman and CEO of Simmons & Company International. Mr. Simmons is a prominent oil industry insider and one of the world's leading experts on the topic of peak oil, Mr. Simmons was motivated by the 1973 energy crisis to create an investment banking firm catering to oil companies, and in his previous capacity, he served as energy advisor to U.S. President George W. Bush. 
Matthew Simmons is a member of the National Petroleum Council and the Council on Foreign Relations. He believes uh, a careful assessment of Saudi Arabian oil reserves is the most significant issue shaping uh, petroleum politics. And uh, in, he is, as I said, the author of Twilight in the Desert, uh, the coming Saudi oil shock in the world uh, economy. His, uh, his examination of oil reserves uh, decline rates um, really was very, very uh, significant uh, in his work, and so we're going to ask him more about that. Welcome, Mr. Simmons, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay, and I'll correct one thing. I'm now Chairman Emeritus of Simmons & Company. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that... I always feel so sorry for Mike Frazier, who keeps hearing me described as still the CEO. Okay, my apologies to Mike then, and uh, in any event, you were the founder, and yep. you were very much involved with it, I'm sure, still. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on on our show. It really is appreciated. Uh, the term peak oil is a very common term among investors these days, thanks in no small part to the work to your work uh, and your book Twilight in the Desert. But just to make sure that everyone listening to this show understands exactly what you mean by peak oil, can you define the term? Sure. It's a it's a it's a firm that it's a term that gets widely misunderstood of thinking that someone said that the peak oil people said we're about to run out of oil, and we'll never run out of oil. What we're running out of is high-quality oil that flows easily out of the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's what we've already passed is the peak sustainable crude oil flow, and that happened five years ago. And, and we're now getting further and further behind, so the idea of actually catching back up is becoming pretty remote. So that was uh, five years ago, about the time you published the book, Twilight in the Desert. Yep, just yeah. purely by happenstance. Well, you noted then that your major concern was, uh, there was a great deal of complacency at the time about the lack of ability to continue producing more and more oil to meet the world's growing demands. And specifically, you thought there was, there was too much faith put in the ability of Saudi Arabia to produce oil. Uh, you still feel that way? Yeah, it was really not just Saudi Arabia. It was the entire Middle East. Yeah. We, we we somehow created an illusion that the Middle East was a giant sea of oil, you know, laying under the sand that was almost, you know, you know, almost inexpensive to produce and would last forever. And there was never any basis for that. But no one ever basically went back and actually dug into the data and said, there's only a handful of fields I've ever found, and they're all old. Well, you did do some digging into the data, I think. Uh, I dug which a was long a time. Good... I'm sorry? I, say I, I spent so much time... Uh, between the spring of 2003 and up to a month before the book came out. I've never done so much research in my life. Well, you, uh, your source, I think, largely was the Society of Petroleum Engineers, so yep. technical papers that were yep. written by, by, by the people that would know hand. those projects the best. Yep. Okay, so about that time, I think, if, if, um, if I'm correct about this, the Saudis were producing about 10 million barrels of oil a day, um, I seem to recall you saying somewhere that they were projecting 15 million barrels a day, and then they cut it back to about 12, 12 and a half million barrels a day. Have they been able to reach that level of production? Are the Saudis putting out anything like that now? As far well, as well, you know? it depends on on who you listen to. If you listen to the pronouncements from the Saudi Petroleum Ministry, uh, they have the ability today to produce about 12 and a half million barrels a day. If you listen to some of the insiders, they sound like they're struggling to stay close to eight. Hmm. Wow. In my opinion, this is the first time we've ever had no spare capacity. So, <clears throat> uh, well, we had, of course, a drop in the oil price, a very dramatic drop yep. in the oil price yep. after the Lehman Brothers collapse yep. 
in October 2000, September, October 2008, uh, from 147 bucks the high to, I think it maybe hit $40 or something. No, it hit like that. 31, 31 and change. Wow. Um, that would have been, in retrospect, uh, quite a buying opportunity. Yep, yep. So, uh, where do, so we're, we're back up at what, 70 or $80 now? I think 85, 86. Okay. I think it's, to me, in my way of thinking, it's very difficult to say where the price of oil or any commodity is going to go in the future because, quite frankly, we have a measuring stick that isn't very, isn't very dependable. That would be the U.S. dollar, for example. Mm-hmm. We're creating enormous amounts of, of money out of thin air to finance all manner of bailouts and, um, uh, you know, government spend, expenditures for one thing or another. Um, but, so, where do you think the price of oil can go? Well, first of all, we've we've really basically done away with easy projects anymore. So all of our future projects are going to be very expensive. Uh, we have an industry that basically its asset base is largely beyond its original design life. It needs to be rebuilt. Uh, the if, if we rebuilt sixty percent of the oil and gas infrastructure globally, it would probably cost at least a hundred trillion dollars. So prices need to go way up. Or we just won't get anything done. Okay, the price. Not is sure where we're going to get the people to do that. Well, yeah, I mean that's we another issue, isn't it? The, uh, the technological the capability. The people that know how to. I mean, the technicians. Yeah, two about two thirds. There are too many studies that are now finally being done, way overdue, that show that in the next five to seven years, about two thirds of the energy workforce will retire. Okay, and. You don't see you don't see a pool of new talent coming into the market. No, no. We we just barely got started when we had our financial collapse, and then all the new pool got fired. Um, okay, so, so the, we have the the, 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 the collapse think... turned out to be a really cruel hoax of thinking we'd solved our oil problems. Mm-hmm. And and it's amazing how fast we bounce back. The problem is we're bouncing back too fast. We can't supply it. <clears throat> well, the demand, uh, you know, the demand side of the econ- of the uh, for grow- for oil, of course, is coming from the Far East, China, yep, yep. India, uh, India, Middle where East. we have large numbers of people who, for the first time in their lives, are starting to enjoy what we have taken for granted here in the West, uh, yep. sort of middle class comforts. Um, people going from bicycles to cars and yep. and uh, oh, to from walking to motorbikes or whatever. And this is, of course, a massive new uh, growth in demand. The Chinese are very active, I believe, in various parts of the world, in Africa and places like that. But let's talk a little bit more about the uh, declining production. I mean, you paid a lot of attention to data from the uh, from Saudi Arabia. What about Iran? We have produ- we have Iran's oil fields are even older than Saudi Arabia's, and really in a mess. Uh huh. There's a new theory that somehow Iraq's going to come to the forefront, and the, uh, I mean, I, I read, you know, you know, analyst forecasting that within five or six years, Iraq will be producing 16 million barrels a day. Mm. Realistically, they'll be very lucky to produce what they're doing today because their fuels are too old. And what is their current production about? It's about 1.8. So, so, so we don't have really anything on the horizon that really that really basically works. And we have demand now, you know, that you can't stop. So demand has become a runaway train. We have a declining, uh, staying on the si- on the supply side. We have a declining level of production, a very rapid decline in Mexico, from what I understand. Yep. We have a and decline in Iran. 
are you saying that these declines are are are, are natural and it wouldn't matter whether yeah. we had technical talent or not uh, yeah. they are in decline no matter what yeah. or yeah. would some technical expertise make some difference would it help somewhat oh yeah there there but but what you're really talking about is staving is 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 mitigating the extent of the collapse mm-hmm. as opposed to as opposed to turning an old oil field back into a young field mm-hmm what also has happened is we're really basically quickly running out of light, sweet crude. Most yeah. of those great crude streams have basically disappeared. And what, and what we're do, doing is we're substituting a steady rise in crude grades that are heavier and more sour and more metallic, and they're just very hard to refine in finished products. And they're having energy-intensive and extremely water-intensive. And, and in terms of the refining capability, I guess that's another issue, huh? Having the, you know, having that's the an plants. oxymoron. What's that? The refining capabilities in oxymoron. Their average refining in the United States is almost 85 years old. So what are we going to do? Well, that's a problem. Uh, we have a water scarcity, and we have a pending uh, uh, fossil fuel scarcity, particularly in the form of transportation energy. And then there's an unbelievably interesting and, and almost totally ignored interdependence between the amount of water it takes to create modern energy and the amount of and the amount, and the role of energy in creating water. Mm. Turns out the average gallon of motor gasoline in the world requires about three gallons of water at the refinery in the cooling towers. Mm. Wow! The forty percent of America's fresh water is used for power generation. Is that right? Yep. So shortage of water, uh, another big problem looming over the horizon. The problem is already here. That's that's a problem. Actually, we've ignored far more than even peak oil. But it's the uh, interrelation between the two. Most of our remaining usable water comes from aquifers, so it takes a pump to get it out of the ground. So if you actually don't have elect- don't have energy, you can't get the water out. What? Um, can you talk a little bit about the cost of new exploration? I mean, uh, the oil companies are exploring expensive. for are are exploring deep under the ocean for oil and gas. Still, I guess. Uh, yeah. The, what is it costing now, on average, for, for oil companies to go in and, and find new deposits? Yeah, they're, you're you're now talking about individual wells that are costing between 150 and 300 million dollars. Mm-hmm. That used and, to be an enormous field. And what are the probabilities of coming up empty and not having anything? At, after you spend a lot of money? Uh, probably two-thirds. So a one-third chance of hitting something yeah. that might yeah. pay for the capital and yeah. two-thirds chance of... of it's one of the reasons we need to prepare ourselves for far, far higher oil prices. We had, uh, on this show a little earlier, we had uh, Amir Adnani. He's the president of a company called Uranium Energy Corporation. Uh, they are getting ready to produce uh, something like a million pounds of uranium a year from Texas, growing that to 2 million pounds. He mm-hmm. tells me that there's 3.5 million pounds of uranium produced in the United States right now and that we are consuming something like 55 million pounds of uranium in the United States a year, 55 million pounds to generate 20% of our electricity in the U.S. Yeah. And yet uh, uranium is abundant in the United States, yet we're not we're not going after it. Do you see uranium and nuclear power as part of the solution? No, I think I think it'll be. I think we're going to have to work very hard to stabilize what we're doing today. See, we, we might we probably have abundant uranium, but we don't have abundant high quality uranium. Yeah, that's the problem across the front of, the, of where we're headed. We've sort of used up the highest quality stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was actually in grade school, 
in Utah when Charlie Steen discovered this fabulous source of uranium in Moab, and he found it with a Geiger counter. Yeah. <laughs> you can't find uranium with a Geiger counter anymore. Well, it's true. A lot of the uranium production is now coming through what they call ISL. Yeah, very low quality. Yeah, it's low, it's low grade. Amir tells me their projected cost are something like 15 to $18 a pound mm-hmm. for production. Of course, that's not counting capital costs, yep. and they were able to get some plant equipment that was in place and get it cheap. That compares to, I don't know, 40 or $50 a pound uranium prices, which in theory would, you know, would, would be a nice profitable little business. However, it is a little business. When we talk about a million or two million pounds compared to the United States' consumption of 55 million pounds, I don't know. Uh, um, so what we, you're saying is uranium is not the answer either. We have 103 or 104 operating nuclear plants in the United States, and at least, at least 25 to 30 of them have to be replaced in the next 10 to 15 years. And that's going to cost a lot of money. A lot of money, and it's really there's some, there's also some just basic work finally starting to be done to try to figure out the amount of energy it creates it, 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 that we use to create a thousand megawatt nuclear plant. And some people think it might be equal to about ten to fifteen years electricity output. Mm. So they become kind of net energy losers on a present value basis. Yeah, sure. Um, they're also water hogs. Yeah, they can. Yes, that's that's for sure. They can be uh, water hogs. I one of the things that that troubles me, Matt, is uh, it seems to me that the price of oil has risen dramatically more than the demand for oil has risen. Uh, between here's a number I've just seen. I want to see what your response is to it. Between 2002 and 2008, demand for oil. I think this is global demand for oil supposedly grew by about 9%, while the price of oil went up 600%. Now, I know you can take, you know, you can take starting dates to make mm-hmm. your case, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But, what, but, what do you, but certainly the oil price has gone up more than demand, has well, it not? Are, are you it, suggesting that this is this uh, no, shortage No, we were coming from such an artificially low base. I'm sorry? We were coming from such an artificially low base. Uh-huh. You know, on the price. Uh, I mean, the problem right now is demand is outstripping supply. Okay, demand and and primarily, would you say from from Asia, from India, from yeah? China? I mean, even the United States, we're we've got a you know flattened out, but but uh, you know in the, in the in the last decade, our demand grew by about three million barrels a day. <laughs> our demand has grown even in the U.S., even in yeah. a mature economy like it the got, U.S. It got over twenty million barrels a day, and literally we couldn't supply the market. We did drop back some, I think, after the uh, after after the financial crisis. In yeah, I think we're now down to nineteen versus twenty. I'm sorry? I think we're now down to about 19 million barrels a day versus 20. Okay, all right. And then, and but, the economy is picking up, at least yep. at the moment. Yep. So I would imagine automobile driving will start yep. to pick up. I did see an article uh, the other day that was that was showing that some of the suburbs that are a long ways, like the bedroom communities where people mm-hmm. have to drive a long ways to into the inner city, I think San Bernardino or someplace like that in California, and they were saying that the housing, uh, the, um, the defaults were rising more rapidly in those neighborhoods where people had to drive further, you know, to get to work. Do you do you see this as as something that might, uh, you know, something we might see more of in the future if energy prices continue to rise? You know, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's an area I don't pay much attention to, mm-hmm. so I'll just pass on that. Okay. Um, so oil prices are rising very dramatically, and you, you don't think that that's really, um, you, you oh, think it's just think really it's because we, they were way too low to start with, yeah, yeah. in effect. Yeah. Why, why was that? Why did we have such low oil prices for so long? We had a belief that we had a, you know, almost a permanent glut. Mm-hmm. 
and, the, and as long as we kept peace in the Middle East, we would have, you know, we could live with cheap oil forever. And what was interesting, there was never any basis to sustain that. Yeah. Sort of like in the Cold War. We spent 40 years thinking that the Russian economy was, you know, equal or to a greater than us. And we finally realized it wasn't. Yeah, we did. We did finally realize, and that was. Uh, it was finally. It was. It took a long time. Yeah. That's sort of the propaganda, I suppose, though. Yeah. That was that was needed this, to keep. This it. was even more propaganda. Uh, it was, far- everyone's whole card was, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll we have a, you know, if we, as long as we can get, contain peace in the Middle East, we will basically have cheap oil forever. What about uh, oil companies themselves have been very optimistic about their ability to produce uh, oil, or at least on the surface they have been optimistic, whether what they're saying in their boardrooms or behind closed doors, who knows for sure, but they were at least on the surface very optimistic. And, you know, the big oil companies have been, had been, at least until recently, I don't know what they're saying right now, but they had been saying, predict, predicting very low oil prices. Um, out in yeah, the curiously enough, almost all of the major oil companies have been in production decline for the last, for close to the last decade. Uh-huh. But they remain highly optimistic that this is an aberration. So, so, uh, and so what are, what are you telling? So are they asking you for your view on things? And the major oil companies? Yeah. Not really. Who do you, uh, your firm consults then with, would you say, uh, new producers, younger uh, companies that are starting up? Or Well, we, our, the, the strength of, of, historical strength of Simmons Company, even though we now do have total energy research and investment banking, has always been the oil service industry. Mm-hmm. The people building the tools and services to actually get the oil and gas out of the ground. And uh, and we do a lot with the, with the and we 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 have friendships with the, some of the big oil companies. They they tend basically to be the people most skeptical of my views. I wonder I'm why that is. Probably most skeptical of theirs. I, I wonder why that is. They have they they have so much muscle, so much. Um... You know, I don't know. It's just uh, uh, I think there's sort of a too big to fail syndrome. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about natural gas because natural gas prices have been lagging very significantly behind oh, well, the biggest oil gap we've ever had between oil prices and gas prices we're sitting on today. The biggest gap? Mm-hmm. Why is that? We have a we have a firm belief that is swept over the United States that through technology we have we have now an abundant source of SHALE shale gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that basically will creep, create a glut for maybe another 10 to 20 years. And it's preposterous. You don't think that's possible? No, it's not possible. The decline curves per well are almost vertical. The water intensity is unbelievable. The water disposal issues are very serious. So I think, that, I think within a short period of time we'll look back and say, well, that was one more myth. Yeah. All right. Well, the natural gas prices. So you think that there that oh, there's this go myth that we won't have a natural gas industry? I'm sorry. Unless they go way up, we will not have a natural gas industry. So do you? So well, yeah. What, the price of natural gas is so low that it's just not. Interesting. Uh, I mean, it's just killing the people in the industry. It's not interesting to invest in it. That's yeah. for sure right now. But it's all on. It's all on a belief that we have probably, you know, ten to twenty years of of uh, of, of a gas glut. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a you know everyone pretend we'll figure, we'll figure out a way to make this work. We'll just drive our costs down. Where's what about that cost uh, have to go way up? Uh, so what about uh, what about coal? Is coal an, an answer for us? I think the reality of coal is that we have almost depleted our high quality seams of black coal, mm-hmm. and, and and brown coal like Putter River Basin is really basically dirt with some coal specks in it. Mm-hmm. 
I think the tragedy we had in the Massey coal mine in West Virginia was really basically, if you look at the, at the schematics of that, mm-hmm. you got about a five or six foot high you know, uh, 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 passage that has to go two miles into the mountain, and there's no way to ventilate it. Mm-hmm. Back back 50 years ago, we had huge, you know, faces of black coal that you had a you had a ventilating shaft with an elevator going down. Mm-hmm. Now you have people going in on a Guernsey. Are there not some uh, some large uh, coal deposits, uh, open pitable deposits out west yet? Still, that's all bitumen coal, which is basically brown coal. Uh huh. Very low grade stuff. Yeah. It was a great it was a great chapter of a book that John McPhee wrote called Common Carrier, called Coal Train. Uh-huh. And he told in with excruciating detail, as McPhee tends to do in his great books, about the the uh, five and a half day journey of a mile and a half unit train going from Powder River Basin to a power plant outside of Macon, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And on it was nineteen thousand tons of coal. <laughs> and when they're all dumped on the up pneumatic down, and the, and the train unit train goes start back empty, you have on the ground ten hours to, of coal around the power plant. Yeah. Yeah. If that were black coal, it would be just, uh, so again, it's one more case of we run out of the high-quality stuff. High-quality stuff. The easy-to-get-to, uh, yeah. low-cost, uh, high-quality stuff. That's why they're doing so much mountaintop you know, yeah. clearing for coal, is that the seams are so little, it's the only way they can get it out. Yeah. Well, it certainly is, is true also in, in areas that I'm more familiar with in energy and in, in the metals industry, you yeah. know, with the precious metals and base metals and so yeah. forth. The, the easy plums have been picked, to, so yeah. to speak. Now, I have, a, I have a quote from uh, Senator Orrin Hatch I want to read to you and just get your response to it. Uh, and this was about the time you published your book on October 17th, mm-hmm. uh, to be exact, 2005. Orrin Hatch said the following, and I quote, You also may have recognized a profound geopolitical shift over the next decade or two as the supply of conventional oil begins to dwindle in the Middle East and the commercial production of our unconventional resource, resources take off in North America. And as the scenario unfolds, I believe the U.S. and Canada will emerge as the dominant energy powers in the world. In Alberta, you have dozens of major oil companies using a variety of technologies and recovery methods going after very different types of oil sands resources, and in in almost every case doing so for less than $20 a barrel. It is a gigantic success story, and it began with Alberta's government deciding to promote the development of this resource and not giving up, end of quote. Yep. So what? Um, so what about the oil sands? Was uh, Senator they, Hatch they wrong about that? The, it's a real technology, not evolving technology that might reduce the cost we, of oil. We know how to do it, but it's extremely expensive, mm-hmm. uh, and basically it takes a prolific amount of water and natural gas to to, to, to melt to to, to 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 flush the uh, uh, oil out of the sands, mm-hmm. or in situ mining. Right. Senator Hatch was also a, a big believer because the. The uh, the, uh, the uh, on Capitol Hill, the Shell Oil Company had a huge amount of br- briefings about how easy it was going to be to get oil shells out of uh-huh. Utah and Colorado. Uh-huh. We had an interesting conversation one day where I reminded him I was from Utah. I said, "There's no one that would be happy if that was real, but it's not." Uh huh. Interesting. Well, he he probably had his own reasons for thinking that. Well, or, he, or he got pushing he, that, but twenty dollars a barrel sounds you, you like could that. Read that every place, so it wasn't now. Senator Hatch being. Energy literate. He just, you know, I mean, he, he's not an energy expert, but he read it. Yeah, and believed it, and believed it. So we're talking. I mean, he was talking twenty dollars a barrel. That doesn't sound yeah. realistic uh, in two thousand no. at this point in time. What do you think the cost is? In the- I gather it's more like seventy to eighty dollars a barrel. Okay. 
All right. Well, then that's sort of break. That's not even break even until you cover your cap cost with current. Again, current interesting price. enough, if you have a fully depreciated plant, mm-hmm. then you have a very different capital cost than if you're actually if you're actually adding incremental production. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, um, it's it's very interesting. We're just about out of time here, but I want to ask you uh, because I've enjoyed your Twilight in the Desert book so much. Are you planning to p- uh, publish anything else in the near future? I've, I've pretty well decided. I haven't really gotten started very far into this. That I probably am going to do maybe one final book called The Dawning of Ocean Energy. Because, in my opinion, that's the that's the last frontier of tapping all the various energy sources out of our ocean because the desert's going dark. The dawning of ocean energy. How do we get energy out of the ocean? Well, we have a big project that I've helped, helped uh, put together in in uh, 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 in the Gulf of Maine uh, that the Ocean Energy Institute, which I founded three years ago, is, is, is sort of overseen. And the lowest hanging fruit of ocean energy turns out to be offshore wind when you get 10 to 20 miles offshore. So you're far enough away from the land to hide from the from, so that you get high quality wind. And through the advanced composites the University of Maine have, we're going to build some gigantically tall wind turbines, totally redesigned, hmm. and actually turn the offshore wind into distilled seawater and liquid ammonia. Interesting. Very, very interesting. I, I know there will be a lot of skeptics about that project. Anything that's new always always brings. Uh, yeah, but it's people. very real. Got some very serious people working on it, uh, and. Once we prove it, it can work in the Gulf of Maine, it can work a lot of different places around the world. Okay, what about uh, when you when you talk about oceans, I think tide, tidal... Tides are tougher. Uh, currents and waves are really tough. But the low-hanging fruit is offshore wind. Okay, well, we'll be looking for your book. Um, when, when are you going to publish it? Oh, gosh, I haven't <laughs> even gotten started. But it's a big you job, You can right? go on our website and see oceanenergy.org. Okay, and OceanEnergy.org, and any other sites where people can follow your work? Well, the Simmons & Company website has all the talks I give. Okay. Which are way too many. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm sure I'm sure they're very interesting. What is that website, then? It was... uh, well, Google my name is the easiest. Okay, very good. We'll do that. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Simmons, for your time and uh, your sharing your expertise and your knowledge of the industry. It, it really is a pleasure having you on our show. Pleasure to be on. I wish you all the best. And then, and then when you come back, when you publish another book, I'd like to have you on again if you'll Great. agree. Be delighted. Thank you so much. Okay. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Paul Michael Wiebe. He's going to have a slightly different take on the, uh, on the energy markets than Mr. Simmons. But... Uh, Let's uh, to just, just to coin a phrase from Fox News. We report, you decide, and uh, we'll be right back with Paul Michael Wiebe. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits, Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 
Marex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya gold deposit. For more information about Marex Gold, visit us on the web at www.marexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Coronado Resources is a Canadian-based exploration and development company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. Its wholly owned Madison Gold Copper Project in Montana, USA has received revenue from high-grade gold and copper shipments while developing its underground workings to 250 feet below surface while limiting share dilution. Coronado is now driving the decline an additional 60 feet below the lowest workings to access the rich gold mineralization encountered from recent drilling and continue exploring the system, which is open at depth. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. PMI Gold has just raised $7.5 million to expand drilling at four former gold mines we own in Ghana. Ghana is Africa's second largest gold producer, and with neighbors like Newmont, Anglo Gold, and Goldfields, and a land position equal to the entire length of the Carlin Gold Belt, we're going for the gold. PMI Gold is listed in Canada and Frankfurt, and plans to list on the Australian Stock Exchange to finance development of our first mine at our Kubi Gold Project. Our plans are big and growing. Come grow with us. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of our show, because without them, this would not be financially possible. Our sponsors for the second hour are Barkerville Gold, Magellan Minerals, Apollo Gold, Columbus Silver, Coronado Resources, Uranium Energy uh, Company, uh, Goldrich Mining, and Canico Resources. Well, I hope you enjoyed the views of Matt Simmons, but peak oil is not necessarily a theory shared by everyone. I think there is no disputing the fact that most, if not all, of the easiest to get to uh, reserves have been tapped out. Uh, there is no disputing the, that oil is in decline in Mexico and the North Sea and elsewhere. There is no disputing the fact that oil production is in decline, has been in decline in North America, at least if you're looking at non if you're looking at traditional oil sources, anyway. But are we doomed to a future of declining living standards because we are all running out of oil? Do we have to look to the ocean, as Mr. Simmons suggested, for the only source of, of our future energy supplies? For a different view than the one just provided you from uh, by Matt Simmons, and one I might add that is much more positive and uplifting, uplifting than the peak oil theory, I have with me uh, Paul Michael Wiebe. He's the author of a very excellent book called The Rise of the New Oil Order. Uh, in his book, Paul talks about massive new supplies, about exciting new technologies, and the emerging oil powers of the 21st century. Paul Michael Wiebe is president of G-West, which stands for Global Water and Energy Strategy Team. G-West is a strategic energy advisor to governments and to companies in North America and Africa. Welcome, Paul, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be on with you. Well, it's really great to have you, and I, I couldn't think of, of a more contrasting uh, view than yours uh, with Matt Simmons, I must say. Uh, in your book, The Rise of the New Oil Order, you suggest that some funny things have been going on in the oil markets. It don't exactly make sense. I did mention this to Mr. Simmons, and his response, uh, I want, so I want to get your response now, but the the, the idea that oil rose 600% from $22 to $147 between the years 2002 and 2008 at a time when the demand for oil grew by only 9%, it does, it does raise some questions, I think. What is your theory as to why we have had such a disproportionate rise in the price of oil compared to, uh, to its demand? And was there perhaps a major, some, was there maybe a major disruption in supplies during that time, the supply side of the equation maybe? is to do with it, or, or what's caused it, in your view? Well, Matt, uh, uh, Matt has spoken, I think, to the, the prevailing assumptions that we're all pretty familiar with. That's to say, the oil market existed really up until 2000 to 2001. And, and um, the fundamental assumption was based on market fundamentals, mm-hmm. supply and demand. Uh, even though there was significant uh, political manipulation of supply and of prices, uh, going back uh, several decades, and we can talk about that particularly in terms of Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, agreement with Saudi Arabia to undermine oil prices in order to uh, destabilize the Soviet economy. Mm. But uh, after 2001, specifically as a consequence of um, the al-Qaeda attack on the United States, uh, we saw structural changes in the market. Uh, those structural changes resulted in geopolitical factors driving oil prices to a very great extent. 
later on in that period, uh, towards uh, 2007, 2008, we saw the speculative and manipulative aspect of the market really begin to take hold and utilize the theories of peak oil to create uncertainty in the market, to raise questions about the supply of oil, and run prices up to $147 a barrel. And uh, this is against a, um, a uh, demand increase, as you mentioned, um, Jay, of about only 9%. Mm-hmm. So there was clearly something very dysfunctional about the market. Mm-hmm. It's an area that hasn't been uh, very thoroughly explored because I think it leads to a lot of troubling questions yeah. in terms of who controls the market and how is that market uh, essentially manipulated. We're seeing now in the congressional hearings, particularly uh, uh, today with Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, Washington really look into this issue of the speculative mechanisms mm-hmm. that have been working Wall Street these last 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, they've not only worked Wall Street in sort of the general sense, but specifically in terms of certain commodities, particularly oil. Mm-hmm. Um, the speculative aspect of the market has um, distorted the so-called market fundamentals that you know, we're all fairly familiar with. But um, I think what we see now is, is, is a market in transition. It's a market... Uh, the global oil market is not you know, your, your father's or your grandfather's marketplace. It's very diverse, very sophisticated. Uh, you know, the, my position is that we have an extraordinary abundance of petroleum in the world, that's oil and natural gas. Uh, we have new sources of, of um, petroleum coming online, new technologies. I don't believe there's reason for panic. I don't believe there's reason for uh, fear. Uh, there is requirement, however, for you know clear uh, and precise understanding of the uh, underpinnings of this market, both from an economic, scientific, and political perspective. And that's where I think a program like yours is very, very helpful. Well, um, certainly it's helpful to have different views, and and you're presenting one that's that's very, very different from Matt Simmons to talk about an abundance of oil. When Matt Simmons is suggesting we're going to have to go swimming in the ocean to find some sources of energy, um, you know, and and windmills off the shore, um, I don't know what about what about some of these alternative energy sources? Do you see them as viable? Some are are viable in terms of niche markets, mm-hmm. uh, uh, particularly as it, as it pertains to solar or wind, but they certainly can't replace the petroleum-driven economy that uh, we're familiar with here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just a question of the uh, economics of, of alternative uh, energy sources, but also the practicality of infrastructure and the costs involved in terms of tr- establishing new transmission systems um, uh, that are generated because of uh, new solar uh, uh, capabilities and new uh, wooden uh, capacities uh, that are being built. Uh, I think... Uh, we uh, will have a very, very strong and vibrant petroleum-driven energy sector sector for uh, many decades to come. And I think uh, we will see uh, a petroleum sector that increasingly adopts clean energy standards and clean energy technologies. And we see this today with, with um, uh, trailer trucks uh, that now are mandated to have new clean diesel technologies, and this has been the case since 2007. 
the emissions are essentially zero from these new engines. Uh, we see it also being applied in automobiles, particularly with the German models, uh, uh, Audi and Volkswagen, Mercedes, taking the European uh, diesel uh, technologies and applying it here to the U.S. market. So uh, I don't think, you know, we're, we're at the stage uh, where we're going to run out of petroleum anytime soon, nor are we at the stage where uh, we're doomed to dirty emissions from petroleum use. So I think there's um, reason for hope mm-hmm. and no need for panic and, therefore, no need to have cynical manipulators uh, use false information to drive our prices for their own uh, narrow interests. Okay, well, let me ask you about um, this whole issue of transparency. I know in your book you talk about American oil companies that are really under-reporting their reserves. Why do they do that? I think I would think that oil companies would want their shareholders to know what they have so their, so their uh, share prices could, could reach the sort of optimum levels. But why, why are they under-reporting their reserves? Well, some companies, and Shell uh, was caught up in this game a few years ago, particularly in terms of under-reporting its uh, reserve holdings out of Nigeria, where um, uh, Shell has approximately 50% of its global reserve holdings worldwide. And, and uh, I think, uh, although it hasn't really been proven in the court of law, uh, some companies believe that they can uh, uh, increase the value of their stocks uh, by taking advantage of this idea that supply is running out. Therefore, uh, the less you have of it, the more valuable it is in terms of any... Mm-hmm and you're familiar with that, and it runs up the price of stocks, even though, uh, or in, 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 in parallel to the method, methodology that was used to run up um, uh, oil prices mm-hmm. to the benefit of, of uh, folks who, who held large stock holdings in oil companies. Uh, so the less you have of a you know, strategic commodity like oil, the more valuable it is. Mm-hmm. But it would require these various oil companies to sort of come together to think that way in almost a conspiracy. I mean, uh, otherwise, I mean, why would one oil company, you know, unless they all do it, it would, it would be a disadvantage for the companies doing it, wouldn't it? Yeah, that, words, you know, and but you know, word gets around pretty quickly, as mm-hmm. you know, as um, as uh, there was a want to do when uh, a quick profit can be made on on um, on an issue like this. And so you falsify your reports, you falsify the reserve holdings. It, it, it also applies, you know, um, uh, to the global pers- perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we have yet to um, have a universal or global standard in terms of accurate, transparent uh, uh, numbers in terms of national uh, reserve holdings around the world. So. Uh, Again, uh, as Simmons indicated in, in his interview with you, we don't know. We don't know exactly what Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Iran uh, have in terms of their reserve numbers. And for many, many uh, decades uh, through the vehicle of OPEC, they were able to use that opaque uh, 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 and, and sort of opaque and nebulous uh, information to work the market to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think we have uh, uh, new methodologies which are empirically based and which apply in places like Canada, even Venezuela, 
uh, and Norway and West Africa, whereby we see exactly how much a national jurisdiction has in, in terms of its reserve holdings. And the more we see that, the more we see that, the more we can moderate uh, the uh, stability of oil pricing at a global level. Now, that's the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need a new mechanism to replace OPEC. That mechanism is going to be based on real numbers that are validated scientifically that will allow uh, 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 companies, uh, governments, and, and the public as a whole to clearly understand how much oil there is now in the ground that's commercially viable and how much oil there is in the future that could be extracted with new technologies. Mm-hmm. You have that sort of information. Uh, you can stabilize pricing, and you can stabilize it at a moderate level, not high enough to bankrupt uh, national economies, but not low enough to undermine further exploration and development. Mm-hmm. And so that's, the, I think, the key question I raise in my book. Can we achieve this new type of um, uh, understanding of the oil market and understand that we have these massive supplies coming online? Mm-hmm. Uh, Venezuela, for example, uh, irrespective of Hugo Chavez and his politics, uh, has uh, 236 billion barrels of proven reserves in the Orinoco Belt, uh, which is, a, is very similar to the oil sands. And it's, uh, it's actually more than what Saudi Arabia has in terms of reserve numbers, because the Saudis don't have proven reserve numbers. They have estimated reserve numbers. Mm-hmm. The Venezuelans and the Canadians have massive proven reserve numbers that dwarf anything in Saudi in Saudi Arabia. So these are the type of uh, issues that governments and, and corporations and the public need to understand in order to to uh, deal with this issue of volatility of pricing. Volatility of prices, as you know, in any in, in commodity is a cancer. Yeah. And, well, let me ask and you. Uh, it's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, the causal link to the boom and bust cycle uh, exists, has always existed. And uh, one of the reasons we had uh, economic stability uh, in the Western world uh, for many decades was that the United States was able to uh, impose itself upon OPEC and maintain oil prices at a very uh, uh, flat and, and low level of around $20 a barrel from the early 1980s until about 2000, that uh, that ability uh, to regulate the market ensured continuous economic growth in the Western world, and as I mentioned earlier, undermined the Soviet economy. And I think okay. that was a, actually a more critical factor in bringing down uh, the Soviet Union than anything else. Well, so, okay, let me let me just ask you though, Paul. We only have about three minutes uh, left, and so I know we're going to have to have you back next week if that's possible. But you heard uh, Matt Simmons say that probably the cost of producing oil from the oil sands is seventy to eighty dollars a barrel. Do you is that does that jive with your understanding? No, I think that's that's uh, too much too high. Much too uh, high. The discussions I've had with uh, folks up in Alberta, and, and I'm pretty familiar with those uh, companies. Uh, is that uh, anything above anything above fifty five dollars a barrel uh, allows the oil sands to be com- 
commercially viable. Commercially viable, pay back capital and earn some earn a return on investment. Let me ask you then, what we I think what what I hear you saying is that we need transparency and uniformity in the reporting of reserves globally. And, right. and it seems to me you're you're talking here about Ronald Reagan's games uh, or Ronald Reagan's policy with respect to help bring down the Soviet Union. Uh, manipulation of the oil markets, um, it's ongoing. I would guess it's still going on, I would think, with perhaps what's going on with the politics of Iran, what's going on with all all that's going on in the Middle East and around the world. Yeah. What are the prospects of this? Are, are you saying that there is more liberalization, that is more transparency coming forward now at this point in time? Do you see that happening? Yeah, I do. And uh, uh, we see this uh, in, of all places, Nigeria. Where they're um, they are on the verge of passing an omnibus petroleum uh, bill, 1,100 pages long, uh, that is uh, entirely based on transparency, accountability, and reporting uh, in the manner you've just described. And they've just been validated in terms of that uh, legislation by the IMF that sent a delegation over to Nigeria to investigate these very issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very important, obviously, because a country like Nigeria needs project financing. They need uh, major lenders around the world to provide them the, the monies to uh, develop infrastructural uh, projects and transparency and accountability based on their primary uh, economic driver, as the uh, petroleum sector, is essential. So uh, I think we're living uh, through a, a new phenomenon whereby these type of uh, values are not driven by sort of do-gooder NGO uh, vehicles, but rather by hard economic and pragmatic requirements. And I think that's a good thing because I believe the more we have of that, the more we can avoid uncertainty, uncertainty that I would say was driven by uh, uh, many of the peak oil advocates and uh, was utilized by by market manipul- manipulators uh, to drive up the price up to $147 barrel, which in turn I think was a contributing factor to the economic collapse a couple months later in, in uh, September 2008. Well, it certainly didn't help, did it, Paul, uh, to have $147 a barrel oil. I was. Uh, I mentioned to Matt Simmons an article I had read about how areas where people have to drive a good ways to the inner city for their jobs, uh, those areas are those those cities are having more trouble, higher default rates on their real estate than areas closer to the in you know in uh, closer into the city where the jobs are. But I, I find uh, what we're doing here uh, with you is just barely scratching the surface. We're talking geopolitics and oil, for example, is a topic that I'm sure you could go on and on with for for long periods of time talking about it but also technologies i mean one of the one of your anti uh peak oil theses has to do with constantly evolving technologies uh that don't that don't require you to go into the ocean for example to look for energy but but quite inland uh in the middle of in middle america and various places i think you don't take anywhere nearly as dire a view of the coal industry as matt as matt oh, that's right. does so I, I think that we're going to have to have you on again next week, if that's possible, uh, Paul, Michael, uh, because I think we've just barely scratched the surface. Uh, we need to get you back on. We have to go to a commercial break now, and I'm going to actually be talking to a coal company that I think has good prospects here in, the, in Kentucky with some very high-quality coal. So if you could come on next week, I'd really love to have you on. Meantime, can you tell people how they can track your work between now and next week? Where can they learn more about you? Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to being on with you next week. And uh, all, all people have to do is go to um, our, our uh, firm's uh, website, which is uh, uh, gwest, 
uh, .net, and uh, we have a, um, a uh, few pages on that web page, and people can read up on the things that we're doing. And, and if they have an interest in the book itself, I can give a phone number, and folks can call in, and uh, we'll have someone call back and, and discuss the book and maybe send them a, a copy if they're interested. And that phone number is 202 589 That's terrific. I can tell you, folks, the book is really very, very interesting and well worth your time. Uh, that is really all the time we have for this segment, but don't go away because we'll be right back with Charles Dejanine. He's the CEO of North American Gem. That's a coal mining company with some very interesting coal mining prospects in Kentucky. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718 718- 
888-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I believe Columbus Silver Corp traded Toronto symbol CSC and in the United States symbol CSLVF offers a potential gain of several fold over its March 31st price of 18 cents. I say that because of its low market cap, its Mojion gold and silver property hosting a partly delineated deposit containing 18 million ounces of silver and 300,000 ounces of gold equivalent. I say that also because of a strong management team. The stock is, of course, not without risk, but in my view, the risk reward ratio is presently very favorable. Go to ColumbusSilver.com to learn more. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. In continuing the energy theme this week, I have with me Charles Desjardins, uh, he is the president of North American Gem. It's a company that's traded on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol NAG. It trades on the pink sheets under the symbol NGEMF. 142.8 million shares outstanding and recent price of around 17 cents. Welcome, Charles, to turning hard times into good times. Thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, we had you on the show on March 2nd, I believe, and uh, since then you've had quite a few very significant press releases, and I want to ask you about them. But for the sake of those listeners who may be new to North American GEM, can you give them just a, an overview of your company's uh, goals, uh, what you're planning to do? You're producing gold, as I understand it now, in Kentucky. But I guess we'd like to know how much coal can you produce. Give us some sense of what the revenues, what the cost might be. If you can just give us an overview of near-term and longer-term, what you think you can do in Kentucky in your coal operation. All right. Well, in the, in the near term, we're right now producing at our first mine with about uh, well, we're, we're projecting about eight thousand tons a month. Now, that's just a thermal coal. Our second mine, uh, which was recently announced, uh, the Gilliam lease, is a permitted mine already, and it will have blue gem and jellico or thermal coal on it. Uh, that facility itself will produce probably about 3,000 tons of blue gem a month as well as uh, five to 7,000 tons of uh, the Jelco seam. Mm. Our third mine is the Swan Pond, or number three, is, is will be coming online at about 20 to 25,000 tons a month, and we would expect to have that up and running in the next uh, probably 90 days. Wow, 21,000 tons per month. Did you did uh, I hear you? Yeah, 20 to 25. Actually, if you ran two shifts, you could do it 50,000 tons a month. But it really, a lot of it depends on the price of coal. The first part of uh, number uh, three is uh, 
being permitted right now for the Jalco seam, but there's also Blue Gem on it. And that's really where we want to go. We want to become one of the major players in the Blue Gem market. We, we feel like internal estimates, we have about uh, 3 million tons of Blue Gem on all our properties right now, and we'd like to get that up to the 6, 7, maybe even 10 million ton range this year. Okay, can you tell our listeners about Blue Gem? Uh, distinguish between Blue Gem and thermal coal that you're producing on the gel coal vein. Well, the Blue Gem is a very interesting seam of coal that's there's, it's used in the manufacture of silicon, and the silicon market grew by 15% last year and is forecast to grow about 8% a year in the coming years. It's only found three places in the world, and the Blue Gem itself, which is in uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, and a bit in Tennessee, uh, is the most sought-after seam for silicon. I see. So the the price of Blue Gem coal is much higher, though, than the than the other coal, right? Yeah, right now it's about a uh, $130 a ton, whereas for the uh, thermal coal that we're producing, it's around 52, 54. Wow, so that's quite a difference. Now, what about the cost of producing the two different coals? Uh, is it more costly to produce uh, to mine out the blue gem than the other uh, than uh, than the standard coal, the thermal coal? No, it's pretty much the same cost. It's uh-huh. uh, uh, sometimes the blue gem is found a bit deeper, so you might have a little more issues that way, like more uh, earth to move on these high walls and stuff like that. So that might take the cost up a little bit, but the margins just jump significantly. I mean, on that blue gem, we should be netting $60, $70 a ton. Wow. So that's pretty good profit margin. Okay, so so what does that mean? And your cost per ton generally, give me a range of your cost per ton between you know, for the thermal coal as well as the blue gem, what would be we be looking at per ton of coal? Per ton on, of the, on the thermal right now, we're forty forty two dollars a ton all in because mm-hmm. it's all contracted. And on the blue gem, we're forecasting possibly as high as seventy. Well, we're mm-hmm. saying less than seventy, mm-hmm. um, but we'll have to see once we start mining it. I think on this uh, on our on the Jameson lease the number two mine that's going into production, it should be exactly the same as our uh, thermal costs to mine the blue gem. Of course, we're going to be getting a bit less of the blue gem. Okay, as I understand it, the blue gem is a vein of coal that lies underneath the Jelco vein. Is that correct? And so yes. you have to get the Jelco out of the way before you can go down and get the blue gem? Um, yeah, it just makes sense when you're doing these high walls to mm-hmm. to take it at one level and then drop it down and, and do the other level. So the blue gem is how much lower? How much? How far below the gel coal vein? Um, hundred feet, I believe. Hundred feet. Okay. So you just take out. So there would be uh, additional cost, perhaps, and that's why you could be looking at upwards to seventy dollars a ton or less than that. You're saying, but even yep. so, if you're getting hundred and thirty uh, a ton for the for the sale of the blue gem relative to $70 cost, that's a better margin than you're going to get on, on the Jelco uh, coal. And as, as we discussed last time, uh, we expect coal prices to go up, both the blue gem and the thermal coal, especially with some of the things that have happened recently in that unfortunate disaster in West Virginia. That was mm. deep mine. Oh. And, uh, but it takes coal off the market, and it's going to make regulators a lot more difficult on, on mining, whereas the stuff we're doing is, is very safe, well, as safe as you can get. And, um, you know, we expect demand to continue to increase and prices to go up. 
Yeah, you were expecting higher coal prices in any event before that tragic event. Um, why could you just explain to our listeners what has made you so bullish? I mean, I know when we talked to you in uh, early March, uh, you know, the economy wasn't as clearly on the rise as it is now. Um, that's, I think, it's still debatable, but nonetheless, you were bullish then. Um, what other factors might go into making a bullish case specifically for your for your project as opposed to some others? Well, first off, close to home, the way my phone is ringing with people trying to buy coal and trying to tie us up for the future. Like, there's a lot of people that buy Blue Gem coal that are constantly calling us and trying to tap into our production and what we have right now and what's coming. But when you look at the coal futures markets, you're looking at, over the next 18 months, a 40% move in coal. Hmm. Wow. That's um, that's very bullish then. Well, I guess, uh, you know, we can start to look at people can start to put the paper to the, the pencil to the paper and sort of figure out what kind of cash flows you might be generating if the numbers you're talking about turn out to be true. I would like to remind uh, listeners that uh, uh, the North American Gem is really a new producer, so it doesn't have a long history. I know, Charles, you're telling us what your uh, best uh, estimate is with respect to cost, and of course, um, everything is subject to, um, you know, we, they're, they're always in mining. There's many times there are, there are things that uh, come into the picture that you don't expect. But what, uh, let me ask you this, Charles, what would really cause you to be less optimistic about your project? What could go wrong, I guess, is another way of putting it. Well, the, the one thing that we've found so far is that uh, consistently there are delays in permitting. Uh, you know, that's that's the toughest hurdle to overcome. One of our recent news releases, uh, we announced an advisor, uh, Mr. William uh, Grable. Yeah. He was the uh, former commissioner of the Department for Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement down there, which is great because he knows everybody in that department, and that's sure. one of our, our big bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's one of the big things. The AMSHA, the uh, the people that regulate the safety and that they, it's hard to, uh, you know, they're on they're looking at it all the time. They can shut down the the mine for little things. So, sure. kind of things cut into production. There's always little things that need fixed and stuff like that. Sure. Um, generally, I don't see a lot of things that the, the timing may change, but. I see us still moving forward and building this company and building some significant cash flow. Okay, well, let's look at some of the headlines. I'm just looking over. Um, you are talking about producing on, on the 25th of March. You put out a headline uh, or a news release talking about producing 8,000 tons per month. Is that You're pretty much at that level now, or that is uh, the capacity uh, of production? Um, we're close to that, but there's that took into account a third auger, which – uh, broke down and is just now being moved to the property, which mm-hmm. should be on it next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so we're we're pretty close to that now. And on the 29th, you mar- you announced that the company completed the upgrade at Tipple. Could you explain what that's about? Well, the Tipple facility is a uh, stokering facility where you size the coal and and wash it. Uh, it's all permitted, ready to go. We we upgraded all the concrete and that for and the scales there. It also has a rail siding so we can ship direct to buyers. Uh, we're planning to expand that uh, rail siding to 110 car rail siding at a later date. What um, on the 31st of March um, you 
you may put out a headline, uh, North American Gem to Buy Knox County Mine. What's that about? Um, is that the Jameson Mine? Yeah, it says North American Gem finalizes acquisition of fully operational Blue Gem coal mine. Right. Conducted. Okay, so that was the Jameson permit, which was, okay. is the permit that has uh, the uh, Blue Gem as well as Jellicoe on it, and we'll, we'll be producing that in the very near term here, probably in the next 45 to 60 days that will be in production. Okay, that's the one where you're saying you're hoping to produce 3,000 tons of Blue Gem and five to 7,000 tons of thermal coal. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, you have a, another one, another headline, uh, this one dated April the 8th, talked about uh, signing a partner for surface mining at the number two mine. That's one of the ways that we control all our costs is what we've been doing is contracting the mining so we know exactly what our cost to actually mine the material is. Yeah. And we know what our, our margin is and what we're going to make. Are, are there costs on top of that? Uh, so so you're, you know, you're contracting out at 40 to $42 a ton or whatever. Is there, are there costs on a, on top of that before, uh, before you see your profit margins? I mean, there's over, there's corporate overhead, of course, but are there other uh, processing costs or shipping costs or anything else? Just royalties. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, taxes, mm-hmm. uh, and then a ship, and then you're right, the trucking cost. Yeah. Which okay. in this case might be two two dollars to two fifty a ton. Okay. And royalties, how much are they? Well, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head okay. what those are down okay. there, but might but be like a range or something like that. How much, Charles? A range. Seven percent. Okay. All right. Just uh, just so people can sort of understand and, and get a picture of what the economics are looking like, it looks pretty exciting. You have a lot of uh, exploration potential then a lot of uh, ability to increase your, your resource here, I guess, uh, significantly. Definitely. And we have a lot of uh, projects in the pipeline right now that we're looking at. Like, we really want to tie up a lot more of this blue gem coal and, and be working towards the permitting process. Well, it is. Uh, it definitely seems to be an exciting story here. It is a company that I have recommended in my newsletter. We've done very nicely with it, percentage-wise. We've had a nice, a nice increase so far, folks. I, I think um, you know, coal is is sort of um, uh, an out of fashion um, commodity, I suppose, in many ways. But uh, it's it's one of those commodities we've got to have. I mean, there's no way we could stop uh, consuming coal right away in the United States and continue our lifestyle as we have it and continue the power plants uh, generating electricity, right? So it's it's something that's here to stay. And you have a very clean burning coal, too, I think the Blue Gem and um, uh, I guess maybe even the um, uh, the other the thermal coal you're talking about. How does that compare in terms of uh, environmental standards? Well, I think it's, it, every, it really comes down to how the people burn it. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, the facility that it goes to and what kind of scrubbing systems it has. And the bottom line is coal gets quite a bad rap, but the technology is there to reduce emissions from these units. They just got to be made to do it. Right. Okay, well, that's about all the time we've got now, Charles, unless there's one more uh, second, a couple of seconds, if you've got one more uh, parting thought before we uh, move on to the next segment. Do you have something else you'd like to say? I think that our shareholders are going to do quite well because our our goal – uh, over the next 12 to 18 months is to get this company to about a million tons of production a year with with at least 400 of that being Blue Gem. 
Wow, that should be very interesting. Well, how can folks uh, keep up with your story then? I guess they can they can follow you on Jay's watch list. That's one way they can do it. But your website is what is it? It's NorthAmericanGem.com. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Charles. And folks, don't go away because we'll be right back with some final thoughts about the markets for myself and my partner, Roger Wiegand. We'll be right back. Don't go away. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. To the human race, some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love and ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. For the wrap-up here today, the, uh, the big news in the equity markets, uh, the Dow was down 213 points and gold is up $14 today. The big news was um, on Capitol Hill, Goldman Sachs uh, investigation, uh, by our lawmakers, and I think even the bigger news um, is that uh, the Greek bonds were downgraded to junk status by S&P. So uh, lots of things going on in the markets today, but uh, one of the things that's really exciting was the news we got from one of Chen Lin's paper pulp stocks today, Can4 Pulp Income Fund. Uh, it uh, came out announcing uh, very strong earnings and also the fact that it was increasing its dividend to 20 cents from 12 cents, and Chen was sort of expecting maybe 18 cents. And this took, uh, uh, this took into account uh, the paper industry before the Chilean earthquake, which has really driven paper pulp prices up. We give uh, credit to Chen Lin for finding this sector. He's doing extremely well in the paper pulp stocks, and uh, this is a, a man who's been able to do exceptionally well in his investing, as I pointed out before, taking $5,400 in 2003, nearly uh, worth nearly $1 million right now as we close the books on this month. Uh, we'll give you a report on that later. You can profit from Chen's work, uh, as I do and many other people do. Many of my own subscribers subscribe to Chen's work. You can call um, Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 uh, to take advantage of a, of a trial subscription. 
Um, Roger Wiegand is not with us today. I was expecting some comments from Roger. Did not get them, but he will more than likely be back with us next week. My big concern about the markets right now is there seems to be an enormous amount of complacency. Seems to be a belief that we are back um, in that everything is back in order in the markets and the economy is getting better and everything is honky-dory again. Well, I reviewed the remarks of Meredith Whitney uh, last week, or earlier this week, I should say, when she talked to Maria Bartiromo on CNBC. And Meredith is not changing her view one, uh, one iota. The only companies she has a buy recommendation on are MasterCard and Visa. None of the financials, not Goldman Sachs, nobody. And she's saying essentially that the banks are still most likely very undercapitalized. And she says, look, if you believe that the housing market is on the mend, that we're on the up and up, and that the housing market is bottom, then maybe you can make the case that the uh, banking industry is back in order. But she says she doesn't believe that. And she thinks the banks are going to start putting out these uh, these properties onto the market very shortly, driving the, sh- the price of houses down. And we'll start to see uh, bank portfolios underwater once again. Well, we can hope that she's wrong, but quite frankly, Meredith Whitney has been spot on, and she's had the courage to say things that weren't popular going way back, and that's the kind of person I have a lot of time for and a lot of respect for. She uh, notice, notes also that the middle class is being tossed out of the banking system. They can't get credit. They can't get mortgages. And to me, that is a macroeconomic story. That's suggesting that this economy is nowhere nearly on the mend. The bottom line for me is that we need to be ready for the worst-case uh, scenario, such as outlined by Dr. Robert McHugh, cataclysmic nation-changing event. The next decline in the equity market could be enormously uh, disruptive. Well, uh, it's time to close. The music is telling me that. Uh, next week, we're, we are going to have Dick Beauvais. Speaking of banking stocks, we'll ask him about Meredith Whitney's views. We're hoping to have Paul Michael Wiebe back on with us, and Rick Rule has uh, agreed to come on uh, to our show. Rick Rule, many of you will know him, uh, investor extraordinary, will be with us. That's all the time we have for now. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, a crackerjack engineer. I want to thank all those folks for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to our sponsors for making it financially possible. And thanks most of all to you for listening to our show and making it an increasingly popular show. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he 